Um, welcome to Encounter Church. For those who know that song, uh, that's Leonard Cohen originally composed, Hallelujah. It's one of the most covered songs um, in American music history, believe it or not. Though most of us are not familiar with Leonard Cohen or any of his writings, most of us have heard that song covered by someone that we love. Um, because pretty much almost every single great musician or musical band has covered that song since it was first composed in the 80s. And uh, this week is kind of ironic in that we were planning to use this song to jump into our, our uh, message today, and Leonard Cohen actually passed away this week, and, uh, which is uh, a, a kind of a sad just reality that this is, he had this incredible ability as a poet to capture the brokenness of life, um, that he was truly a poet-songwriter. And that most people would never listen to his music, but if you read his lyrics, you could understand that Leonard Cohen somehow understood the human heart and the tension. And that he writes Hallelujah um, part, partly out of that passion of understanding the human heart, but also uh, his background and his religious heritage kind of uh, peeks out through the lyrics. That this song, especially the original, um, has this religious undertone to the entire song. Uh, if you're familiar with some of those stories, it's all these ancient Jewish stories about love that peek through the song. And uh, he starts off with the story of David and Bathsheba. That kind of sets the tone for the entire song. And in today, kind of in continuing this passage of this series called Address the Mess, I want to actually press into the story that inspires this song called Hallelujah. Because I think inside of this story of David and Bathsheba, inside of this story that's so compelling and such a, a vivid picture of the human condition that Leonard Cohen grabs a hold of it to, to write this song, I think that we can actually learn a few things about responding to the messes in our lives. Because last week, I, I kind of challenged you and set the tone for the month and said, look, if we want to move into that preferred future, it starts with us confronting our problems. That many of us, uh, unless we're willing to kind of address the mess in our lives, we're going to continue to stay stuck. And that we saw that in the story of Jacob, who um, is able to cross into the promised land because he, uh, while his life had been marked by a man who had been running from his problems, he makes a decision to confront his problems. And that's the path that He's able to step into the promised land, and it transforms who he is. And today, I want to get into a little bit more of the how, the dynamics of the mess, and how do we respond to it? Because how we respond to the mess will determine what happens in the outcome of that mess. And so if you're here today, and this is your first time, I'm going to read far more of biblical passages than I normally do, because uh, we tend to, to like simple and clear and concise. But today, I want to give you the full story. And you're going to kind of run through it. I've, I've given it to you inside Encounter Church's app with the Bible if you want to read kind of slowly and more in depth. I'm also going to be sensitive. This is a raw story. Uh, this is one of those reasons that when I look at the Bible, it kind of gives you a hint that this wasn't just made up. Because if you were making up a religion, you wouldn't take your heroes and walk them through the mud. Um, you wouldn't make David the, the decisive individual who does these following acts if you were making up this religious thing. Because why take one of the most famous kings and reveal him in such a broken human state if you're trying to make this thing up and fluff it up? And so that's what I, one of the things I love about the Bible is it's just raw. And 
One of the things that, you, if you've been here before, you notice that I do when I'm teaching is I will oftentimes start with where the original reader was. Because oftentimes, if we're going to understand it in today, we have to go back to how they understood it then. Because the Bible's historical documents written in a historical time frame to a people that can sometimes feel very distant from us culturally and chronologically. And so today is one of those passages. This is a story from 3,000 years ago. And it's extreme in some of the details. But I think by the time we get to the end of it, we'll find that there is some very clear parallels into today. So um, if you have it and you want to read along in the Encounter Church app, feel free to do so. But I would encourage you just to stick with me on the screen behind me. I'm going to be working through it. And, uh, and that way, at the end, you can pull up the message notes and dive in and kind of collect your thoughts. So um, 2 Samuel verse um, 1 of chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. And this is one of those like original listener kind of moments where I'm just going to hit pause. If you've been tracking along 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and you're a Jewish listener and you're hearing this spoken in Hebrew because um, the Hebrew were an oral people. And so the Hebrew as a language is an oral language, which meant you didn't read it as much as you heard it. And so there were things that really phenomenal Jewish storytellers would say and do to captivate the listener. And this first verse is one of those things that draws the listeners in. If you've been tracking along 2 Samuel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, what you see is this victorious king, this military ruler, because kings in those days had the primary responsibility of leading the army. That was your chief responsibility if you were a king in these ancient times. You led the army into war. And 1 through 10, you've seen David lead the army into victory. Time and time and time again. He is a military genius. And it ends with verse 1 saying, but David remained in Jerusalem. And if you're like, if you're a person who puts a soundtrack to, to, the, to the movie script that's playing out, this is the part where all of a sudden the music just starts to the pivot. And goes a little dark. Because what David does in that moment by staying in Jerusalem is makes a decision that's ne neglectful of his responsibility. He steps into a mess. He's ignoring his primary responsibility. And that's the whole tone of the text. The whole musical soundtrack has shifted. Verse 2 one evening, David got up from his bed, and he walked around on the roof of his palace. His palace is about five stories tall, um, so he's overlooking everyone's homes and kind of the area below. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. In the Hebrew, this is like stunningly beautiful. The, the Hebrews would actually rate um, when they would categorize something as beautiful or attractive. They use the word that is the highest rating. She's stunning. Is they're trying to, to grab the reader and pull them in. Uh, when it says that David walked around, it, this is not just walking around. The Hebrews would have had a picture when they heard it. This is him strutting. He's strutting on top of that roof, creeping, looking out. And then there's this woman. Like this is, you can feel like the tension in the song starting to rise. There's arrogance. There's cockiness in the way David's walking. 
And it says that David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messages, messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. And then it gives you this, this really strange parenthetical thing that is meant to tell you that it's probably not a good time for them to have done that. Because there's some ritualistic timing that's happening in this that's setting them up for what's about to happen. It says, then she went back home and she conceived and she sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So when David sends messengers to find out about her, the messenger comes back and he actually, it's a little bit more polite there. The way it would have captured is like, um, this is Bathsheba, you know who this is. And the way you know that is because he uses two different words. He says, this is the daughter of Elam. And this is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So if you've been tracking along David's storyline, those two names jump out at you. Eliam is one of David's top advisors. When David has a problem, he calls in Eliam to give him advice. This is his top advisor. And Uriah? Uriah is not some nameless soldier. Uriah, when Oftentimes when David would go out in victory, when he would lead the battle, David was an incredibly powerful warrior. He was really skillful. And what he would typically do when he was going in the battle is that David had a small group of soldiers with him. They were essentially the Navy SEALs of ancient Israel. They were men who could do incredible feats on the battlefield, who could fight and slay and conquer thousands just as a small group of this elite fighting force. David led that elite fighting force. And one of the guys in that group of 30 men, just 30 men, was Uriah the Hittite. The, the servant comes back and says, you know who this is. She's the daughter of your top advisor and she's the wife of one of your best friends and fighters. The servant's politely saying, David, don't even go there. But we see he does. And then verse 6, it says, So David sends this word to Joab, his military commander, his general. He says, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And if you're listening along and you're following and you haven't heard this before, you think, okay, David's finally going to swallow his pride. He's going to bring Uriah in. He's going to say, Uriah, bro, I messed this thing up. Here's what I did. I should have been on the battlefield with you, and I never did. I stayed home, and here's what's happened. I'm sorry. But when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was and how the soldiers were and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him, but Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants, and he did not go down to his home. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come up from the military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men, they're all camped in the open country. How could I go home and do and treat life like it's normal? He's like, how can I do such a thing? And he uses this word. He says, as surely as you live, David, I will not do such a thing. And then David said, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. 
And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. As David's, at David's invitation, he ate and drank, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among the master's servants, and he did not go home. You see, David, he's trying to cover it up. Instead of swallowing his pride, he's starting to choke on it. Because now he's, he's trying to cover up. And he's like, if I can get Uriah here, then maybe no one will know I'm that baby's daddy. I can kind of keep that secret under, and no one will know. And Uriah has more integrity intoxicated than David has sober. Because he says to him, how could I do such a thing to you, my Lord? And the, the weight, I mean, this is like, this is better than a movie or a soap opera. I mean, this is just, it's just unwinding in front of David. And so in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. So Uriah has this letter. And in it, he wrote, put Uriah out front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And so while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle, and he instructed the messenger. And here's what Joab knows about David, right? He's about the coach's messenger. When you've told the king about this, the king's anger may flare up because he knows how passionate David is about the life of his soldiers. He knows how passionate David is about victory and wise strategic moves on the battlefield. And so he's coaching his servant. He says, but make sure at the end of the report, you said, oh, by the way, Uriah is dead. And so verse 22, the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. And the messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And then David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And when Uriah's wife, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning, David had her brought to the house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. I mean, you notice how far this thing has slid it started with one decision to neglect his responsibility. And that opened up a path for step after step after step where, where neglect eventually becomes premeditated murder of his soldiers. Joab knows who David is. He says, no, David is going to get angry when he finds out how the battle went. And instead of the old David responding with passion and anger and kind of this Joab preparing himself, it's not an old David, it's a cold David. It says, oh, well, you know, it happens. People die. Like David has progressed from neglect to premeditated murder. And it's not just his outward actions, his inward deposition, deposition, this character thing about him, his sensitivity to the Lord, it's all gone cold. 
He doesn't even care that someone's dead. Because that's what happens. You see, here's the, the, the point of first this like unpacking of this story in 2 Samuel 11 is that if we aren't willing to deal with our mess, if we respond to our mess by trying to suppress it or ignore it, then what we will do is we will fail to address it. We will just keep adding to it. That we will continue to add to our mess instead of addressing the mess in our lives. And here's the challenge. You may read this and you may have been following along with me, and I, like you, see this, and I'm like, this is so extreme. It's extreme in its time period. Like, you could never get away with that today. It's so extreme in the decisions, but it's not as foreign in the dynamic of how David deals with the mess in his life. While it, may, it, it appears extreme on the surface, I think the same dynamic that David falls into is the same dynamic that you and I can fall into, too. That what starts off as a little bit of a conflict in our relationship, when we're dating or in our marriage, that unwillingness to communicate or to address the problem causes it to get larger. Because if we don't address the mess, we add to the mess. And that little argument, that little breakdown in communication eventually turns into passive aggressiveness, turns into sarcastic comments, and we find ourselves, after weeks, months, or years, or decades, we're cold on the inside. We don't even have the same anger that we used to have against our spouse. Now we're just cold to them. And the reason why is we never addressed it over here. And so what's happened is we've continued to add to it. And it's not just in our kind of dating, marriage, relationships. It happens with our kids, right? When they're, they're small and things are starting to go well, and all of a sudden we notice as they kind of start to pivot, if you have, like one I have, that's four going on 37 or 40, whether in this season or whether when they become a teenager, you start to notice this thing called the attitude and their tongue, and they get really good at saying things that make you angry. And instead of responding back graciously, you double down and you say, oh, oh, that's what you want to do. Oh, I know how to do that too. And you, you ratchet it up. And what happens is this continuing escalate of a battle where both of you storm off to your room and doors get slammed and you're struggling with the reality. Of it. I don't even know how to communicate to my child. Or am I losing them? Or how do I speak to them to win their hearts? That what starts off as something small gets larger because the dynamic is, is if we don't address it, it will continue to be added to and grow. And we see that in our finances where we start to live at 101% of what we bring in. And then because of interest, it becomes 103% or 4% or when the Introductory rate drops off 118% of what we're bringing in in our budget. And what was this small purchase, this impulse buy, now becomes something that's spiraling greater and greater out of control. And you no longer have a handle because it's gotten bigger. Because that's what happens with messes if we don't deal with them. It's why some of us have messes in our lives that started off as habits. 
that were social activities, and now they're secret activities. Because we don't want people to know how our habit has become an addiction. Because if we don't address the mess, we add to the mess. And that's what we see play out in the storyline of David. And let's just be honest. Some of us, we made the mess we're in. We were actually, some of, it, some of us even saw the mess coming. Like we bought the ticket to get on that train. We saw it coming. People warned us and, and, and said, hey, this doesn't turn out well. And you said, but we're in love. Yes, it will. Because love always wins. We're going to defeat everyone else's expectations. We're going to rise above. And some of us stepped into relationships and people around us said, hey, this is a bad idea. And you said, no, no, this isn't. Because you were in love. Right? And some of us, well, you didn't ask for the mess. Maybe you ended up marrying a mess. And now you're in the midst of a mess. You didn't plan it. You didn't scheme it. You didn't hope for it. You, you got some warnings before you stepped into it from people saying, I'm not sure if this is the best decision, but you said, no, it's okay. Some of you are in the midst of parenting messes right now, and you don't know what to do, and the doors slam, and the voices get raised, and there's anger, and there's frustration, and that's just you. That's not even them. Right? And you're in this mess, and you're not sure how to address it. Because what happens is when you get a mess, it, it always turns out bigger in the end than what you planned on if you're not willing to address it. And verse 27 is really an interesting passage because verse 27 takes all of chapter 11, all of it, and says, but David, right? But the thing David had done, this pleased the Lord. I think here's the scary part about messes. One day, your mess and my mess an entire season, an entire chapter of our lives gets reduced to a sentence. Isn't that terrifying? The entire chapter 11 gets reduced to a sentence. David had displeased the Lord. And it's the same reality in our lives too. I went through a divorce. I was fired. I had an affair. We didn't work out. I flunked out. We had to declare bankruptcy, right? That we step into these seasons of life and because of our unwillingness to address the mess, that life season becomes a sentence that describes our life. Because while you're in the present, this will one day be your past. And all of that chapter 11 is summed up at the bottom with one sentence. But I want to give you another sentence that you don't have it's not going to be on the screen. The only place that you would even find it is in the app because I didn't want to, I didn't want to spoil it because the sentence is so powerful. See, David, fast forward into the future, he passes away and it's a funeral and people are saying and describing David. And it's not one of those funerals where people say good things about you because they had to lie and make something up. We've probably all been to those funerals where you're like, I think I'm at the wrong funeral. They said they were nice, right? And you're like, they've never been nice or they were never generous. You're like, they were the most like, like miserly individual I've ever met my entire life. They're not generous. 
And what gets said about David in his funeral, you can be tempted to think, oh, this is just them being complimentary. But this is not just what they say. It's what God says about David. 1 Kings 15, um, 5, 15, it says, for David, for, yeah, 15, 5, for David had done what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not failed to keep any of the Lord's commands all the days of his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So David passes away, and what gets said about him, what gets kind of the description of his life, is that overall, he pleased God in every aspect of his life, except for this one time frame with that guy and that incident, Uriah the Hittite. Now, if you just read chapter 11, you don't, you don't see a path for how 1 Kings 15.5 gets written. Because all we've seen David do right now in modeling is try to suppress the mess that's unfolding, and he's just adding to it. But what happens in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel is David instructs us, models for us, teaches for us a different way. He shows us that we can actually not just suppress the mess, but we can actually address the mess in our lives. And to kind of sum up what happens, and I encourage you, you can read it later, but in 2 Samuel 12, the Lord sends Nathan. And Nathan's a, a kind of a pastor, preacher, prophet, advisor to David. Nathan hasn't been around while all this is unfolding. And Nathan appears in the court one day and says, King David, I'm here to see you. I have a story to tell you. And Nathan begins to tell this story about two men in a certain town, one rich and one really poor, and that the rich man, he had a lot of sheep and he had a lot of cattle, but all the poor man had was this one tiny baby lamb. That's all, that's all the poor man could even afford. He raised it. It grew up with him. This is like the most precious thing in this man's life. And then one day, a traveler comes to the rich man and and the hospitality of the day is that you have to take care of your guest. And he says that the rich man, instead of taking one of his sheep or cattle to prepare the meal, instead he goes and he robs the baby lamb from the poor man to feed his guest. And David hears it and he gets angry. It's like, how dare this guy who's wealthy, who has everything, go and rob from one man who all he has is this one thing. And he takes the only thing he had. He takes the only thing this poor man had. He's like, the injustice in that. He's like, this man deserves to die. Tell me his name, Nathan. And Nathan says, it's you, your highness. You were the man who stole the most precious thing from Uriah the Hittite. It was you. And David gets hit with the reality of what he's done. He begins to address it. And the only way that we see progress through a mess, he starts to confess it. And he says to Nathan, he says, against, he says, against God, I have sinned. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. That he finally confesses it. And what you see in this interchange is two different responses to how we can address the mess. For some of you, you're not in that mess. You're watching it from a distance and it's breaking your heart because you've been on that road or you know where that road goes. 
or you're in that relationship and you know what's going to happen if something doesn't change. And the first response is what Nathan does. Nathan goes and he skillfully confronts the mess in David's life. He doesn't roll up and say, hey, David, tell me about Uriah the Hittite. How's that going? He comes in, he tells a story that grabs the heart of David, that grips the heart of David and brings up all this anger. And then he, wham, it's this beautifully staged intervention. And it grabs David's heart and it causes David to do the other response and how we address the mess. For those who are maybe in the midst of it, he confesses it. And now I recognize that confession in our culture doesn't feel very big, right? We have all watched businessmen, CEOs, businesswomen, the future candidates, future presidents stand in front of microphones and say, is this on? Hey, I I have made a serious mistake. But can I just press into that? Premeditated murder is not a mistake. Turning left on a street that's one way, that's a mistake. Putting my daughter's pants on the other way, that's a mistake. Putting flour in when it said sugar, that's a mistake. Premeditated murder, an affair, that is not. And we live in a culture that panders and softens and excuses and creates caveats to the things that we confess to. That's not confession. That's excusing. And it's not the same thing. What David does is David says, I have sinned against the Lord. He uses a strong moral word. He says, I have done wrong. It was not a mistake. It was not a misstep. It was not a miscalculation. It was a sin. It was wrong. And he says, I have sinned against God. And I love it. He's not just saying, oh, I'm going to like, as long as God's okay with this, I'm fine. No, he's He is saying, I'm seeing this thing the way God sees it. He's saying it out loud to Nathan. He's like, this isn't a secret. God knew it wasn't a secret. I've been trying to act like this thing's a secret. I'm done with this. And he starts to see what he has done from the lens and the eyes and the perspective of God Almighty. And he says, I've I've done this. And when you see it from God's perspective, you realize that oftentimes the way you spell mess is the way you address the mess. You start with the first two letters in it, me. You're like, it's me. This mess, this breakdown in my marriage, this breakdown with my children, our financial issues, my career problems, the way I start to address this mess is to start with me and my role in it and my responsibility to it and my lack of action in it. And that's why he says, I have sinned against God. He's seeing it from God's perspective. And and when God looks down, there is no sugarcoating. There is no excusing. There is no whitewashing. It is what it is. And many of us are so afraid to step into the light because we've lived in the darkness of that mess for so long. And I'm telling you, light brings freedom. He steps into the light. And it's not just confession, because he uses this phrase, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. He's implying something. He's like, I've been moving away from how God has called me to live my life. I've been moving away from the things that God has made clear that my life should reflect. 
And so when he confesses that I have sinned against the Lord, he's making a statement that I'm going to start moving towards the Lord now. I'm going to start living out my life in response to what he's asked me to do. It's not just flippant talk. It's action. It's brokenness. It's humility. And I'm telling you, I am convinced that two people who are willing to be humble can get through anything. There is not a struggle, there is not an argument, there is not a brokenness in your relationship. If two people with humility are able to look at each other eye to eye, they can get through anything. Because there's no pretense. There's just you and me, and that's it. And that's what David does. He doesn't try to hide anymore. He finally humbles himself and he says, God... This is what I've done. And for some of us, we don't have somebody in our life that would love us enough to step in and say those things to us. You've got people in your life who are watching you do it, but do you have someone in your life who will say it to you? Do you have someone in your life who cares enough about you that if they watched you taking steps towards a disaster, that they would step in? And say, this marriage is worth fighting for. This relationship is worth fighting for. This financial choices I'm seeing you make is not wise. And do you have somebody who will do that for you? For your marriage, for your children, for your job. Do you have someone who's, who's been given permission by you to say it? Even if it's hard. If you don't find someone. That's why when we started meeting in this Sunday gathering, we knew that at the end of the day, sitting in rows doesn't help us step into life more effectively. Sitting in rows can be helpful and it can be hopeful, but it's when we sit in circles with people that we find transformation. That hope puts on shoes and starts walking with us. Because you have someone who's starting to get to know you you're starting to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and yet, you're, even if you don't believe what everyone else in that circle believes, you still belong there. And they're still calling you to a higher plane of living. That's why we created life groups. It's not so that you can sit in a room with other perfect people, so that a bunch of imperfect people can sit in the room together and try to perfect out life together. And honoring God and moving towards Him, not away from Him. That's why we created those environments. Or for some of you, it may be that your response needs to just be the final response of today. That every single Sunday, we carve out just a few minutes. And in the midst of those minutes, we will introduce you sometimes to a new song or to some words or to some thought that is meant to help facilitate you taking those steps towards what it is that God desires in your life. And the song that I want to introduce you to today, I think, is a powerful song where hallelujah takes us to the place of seeing the mess. This song takes us through the mess, and it's a song called Do It Again. That when David cried out to God, when he finally kind of just said, here I am, he did it realizing that there is a storyline throughout the Bible there's been moments of him interacting time and time again where God shows him that he's faithful, that he is the God who, like last week, is the God of Jacob, 
He's the God who steps into our mess with us and creates beauty for ashes. He's the God who walks into dead things and he makes them alive. And for some of us today, our, our response is simply to, in the midst of this song and singing it and reading the lyrics, maybe begin to pray it. Say, God, I need you to do that again. You've done those things before. Can you do that in fill in the blank? Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's in your dating relationship. Maybe it's in your singleness. Maybe it's in this new season of an empty nester. But just say, God, step into this mess and bring out a beautiful message. Because here's the thing. This life season does not have to become your life sentence. And and that's what we see in 2 Samuel 11 is that your life season does not have to become your life sentence. There's a God who holds the pen, who's got the eraser, and who's ready, if we're willing to invite him, to write a far better story in our life, a more compelling storyline than maybe the one we find ourselves in right now.